Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Today, tonight, it is November 20th of 2014, and uh, tonight our guest is Mark Aronoff. He is the author of One Toke. He is a mental health counselor, and he's been practicing for about 20 years. Uh, We're going to be talking about this book in just a second. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge lay led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. And for more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Mark Aronoff, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening, Mark? I'm doing well. Thank you, Ken. Appreciate you having me on the show. Well, it's great to have you on the show. What is the book, uh, One Toke, A Survival Guide for Teens? What is the book about? So I have been working with teens and youth at risk in general for over 20 years. And a few years ago, I was actually asked to consider writing a book by one of the kids who had turned his life around. And this particular teen was smoking marijuana and continued to smoke marijuana. But what he suggested was, Mark, there's nothing out there that actually addresses the fact that we do smoke, and if we choose to smoke, how do we smoke in a manner that is smart? And what I mean by smart is reducing risk. So the idea came to my mind to address a book to both parents and teens in a manner that's very readable, addressing the fact that some teens, many teens in fact, uh, will choose to try and smoke marijuana on a regular or semi-regular basis. The book itself addresses this, this topic of teen smoking pot and I broke it into chapters that really looked at what it means and can we talk about it in an authentic way smoking marijuana in a manner that reduces risk. Mm-hmm. Have you gotten any flack from uh, anybody about this uh, since it's been out? Well, it's a good question. Uh, this book has been vetted, or I should say I have offered many of my colleagues to read the book. You have a copy of the book. You've seen it, I imagine. You've mm-hmm. passed through it. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of professionals that I'm showing it to, as well as parents in general, are giving me very positive response. Um, clinicians, that is, counselors and psychologists and doctors, find the book supportive of the argument of let's create authentic dialogue with our teens. Uh, The professionals have been supportive and feel it's an important book, a brave book. But I will add that, yes, I have received some flack from, and it's an interesting group um, that I've been trying to to note if there's kind of a common thread through those that are reacting more strongly, that I don't want to talk about this. I don't think this book should be out there. There's some controversy. How dare you write a book that actually talks about teens smoking marijuana? Um, Mm -hmm. 
and I'll just add this, Ken. I was talking about this earlier today with a client that um, who bought the book and came in with the book, and he wanted me to sign it. He finds the book very helpful. This is someone who's uh, in recovery. But I find parents who themselves are in recovery, that is, they're sober, generally mm-hmm. from alcohol abuse, and they have a teen who may be on that cusp of trying pot, I find them reacting strongly that they would prefer their teen not to see this book. Um, mm-hmm. That said, the vast majority of folks who've seen the book, read the book, and have passed it on to their teens, and teens themselves are giving me positive feedback. That's very interesting. I've always wondered if uh, that group of children, uh, you know, children of recovering alcoholics, recovering addicts, I, I, I often wonder if they're at high risk because of rebellion factors. And I've never seen a study on that, but I've always suspected it was a possibility. You know, I, I haven't. It's an interesting. I wouldn't have questioned that niche. And it's interesting that you're bringing up that very question now, that there may be an increased risk for no other reason than the backlash of the sober parent having been through hell and back, fearing their child could go that route. And there's always that element, if it's alcohol-related, of genetics. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I think you may be onto something. There may actually be some... Uh, worthy research that either needs to be done or uh, we haven't seen it yet has been done that looks at the characteristics of either imagined or real um, fears of uh, a parent a parent who's uh, sober and their child coming up into that world of drink and uh, marijuana. Yeah, I know. Um, Yeah, go ahead. I know there was some research done, uh, well, a long time ago, about uh, children of religious teetotalers. Actually, it was about cultures that uh, emphasize, you know, that alcohol is evil. Um, it's Cahalan and Room, which was, I think, published back in the 60s or maybe 70s. They did a big survey, and they found that the children of these strict Protestant uh Groups like Baptists, where alcohol was evil, they had far more alcoholics and far more abstainers and far fewer moderate drinkers than when they compared them with, say, Mediterranean culture of uh, Italian Catholics who had lots of moderate drinkers and very few on the extreme of abstaining or drinking alcoholically. Mm-hmm. I, I've, I've, I've heard, and I believe there are correlations out there of extreme uh, points of view leading to potential opposite effects of what that point of view would like. (laughs) In other words, um, and I have a chapter called Extreme Parenting, um, which, you know, leads me to the question of the statistic of just saying no, which came out of the Bush years, statistically does not work. We know this as professionals, the entire fairly structured hundreds if not tens of millions of dollars that were poured into these programs did not work. Mm-hmm. And if that's true, if we have a parent or a school system saying just say no, then that begs the question, well, what does work? And 
no matter where you are in this country or if you're an extreme born-again Christian or if you're a liberal um, pot-smoking parent, there is a need for an authentic dialogue with your child. That said, how willing are you to have that dialogue? What parameters might you approach with that dialogue? Um, And how do you steer your child through those years? And I'm not advocating marijuana here, by the way. I'm Mm -hmm. talking about an authentic dialogue that simply creates a, uh, um, a feeling of being heard both by teen and parent, but primarily teen, um, and validation that that this teen can talk to his parent. Um, I'd love to see that uh, that be a result of this book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm also going to mention that I'm I don't consider myself either pro or anti marijuana. I personally I can't smoke it because it makes me depressed. So. You know, I haven't smoked it in decades because I have really bad effects from it. I know other people, well, especially I deal with alcohol. Some people get off alcohol, switch to pot, and it makes their lives much better to get rid of, get the alcohol out of their life. So I can see it's very beneficial to some people, and to some people like me, we can't even touch it. So It is a controversial subject. What do we do with a situation of teens partaking in an illegal activity. Mm-hmm. And I've addressed it in a book. Let's talk about it. Others would prefer to just kind of sweep it under the carpet, and I don't want to hear about it unless there's an issue. Mm-hmm. But the times are changing. Whether we're for or against marijuana personally, our teens are going to be exposed to it. Mm-hmm. So once again, and, and I don't know how many of your clients, that are, are you work, if you're working as a, a counselor, if you're coming across teens, but teens are being exposed. Mm-hmm. Not everyone will smoke it, but it, it brings this question in, whatever our personal opinions of it are, and it's important to have an opinion, um, how do we meet our teens where they're at? Mm-hmm. How do we meet anyone where they're at, for that matter? Um, you know, is it my way or the highway or can I have a dialogue with you? Mm -hmm. Um, I do believe in the social construct that parents need to have an opinion for raising their children. This is what I believe. This is what I don't believe. This is what I support. This is what I don't support. Mm -hmm. And yet through it all, through it all, there's some compassion for diversity, for differences, and let me let me hear what you have to say, young man or young woman. Um, how do parents empower their teens? Mm-hmm. What makes for stable and successful adults? And these are all the questions I try and look at. Um, and I guess you know the question that I grapple with is: Can a teen be smart about mm-hmm. doing something potentially stupid? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you be smart about it? And that's that's where I'm beginning. Um, now that's a I very yeah. that's a very good question. Um, you know, we've uh, we have a lot of brain research these days. A lot of neuroscience is very popular, and we do see that uh, adolescents are much much greater risk takers than uh, 
older people, say a after the age of 25, the brain is kind of stabilized, but at these younger ages, you know, we see a lot more risk-taking behavior, and we, we actually see the brain is structured differently. So that's a good question. Um, can teenagers control their propensity to take risks? Well, uh, yeah, that's a great question. I would probably say, no, they cannot control it entirely, but you'll have a wide variation of degrees of risk-taking among teens. Um, science, and I don't know if this is what's getting published per se, or um, uh, this will change in the next few years, but science is coming out with research indicating that there are consequences for smoking marijuana on a regular basis between the ages of, say, 15 and 20, 13, certainly when you, the average teen starts between the ages of roughly 14 to 16, they'll try it first. What we're finding are a couple things. One, pot was roughly 3% THC, the active ingredient, in the early 90s. It's now up to 15%. Mm -hmm. It's huge. Um, two, areas of the brain are being revealed to change with regular pot use among teens. CAT scans are showing wow, your brain is actually changing shape. What we don't know is, I think, how does an argument or a screaming match or a beating with your father or mother, how mm -hmm. does that change your brain? Mm -hmm. How does trauma change our brain? How does rape change our brain? How does perpetual abuse change our brain? We mm -hmm. know pot does. We're establishing that. My big questions are, Okay, relative to the other factors of growing up in life in general, you know, but, well, how does that change? And, and our brain shape, and how does the brain come back to normal? These are all questions of anyone who's in recovery who has a propensity in adult life to either regress. These are generally circumstances at an early stage in life where our brains were wired due to trauma and we react into adult life. Mm -hmm. Will these be the same consequences of teens who smoke marijuana early in life? Will they have motivational problems later in life? Is it a cause and effect? That is not clear. Mm -hmm. But what we are seeing, and I want to address it, is that there's risks, particularly, I want to add this, with a history of mental illness in the family, with a history of schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. um, you want to think twice about smoking pot. Mm -hmm. um, but that said, yes, you kind of addressed another issue is can teens control their kind of impulsive risk-taking behavior? Um, and then I kind of jumped to the fact that, well, the brain is changing while they're doing that. I, I think there's room for, for uh, adaptation. Some teens are more mature than others. Some teens are followers. Some are leaders. Some will try it once and never do it again. Some will try it once and smoke rarely or sometimes socially. Others will try it once and smoke regularly. Others will try it once, smoke regularly, and move on to harder drugs. Well, I guess another way to rephrase this that might be better is what what are the best strategies to help teens control their propensity towards risk-taking? Well, that's a great question. So first of all, that question pretty much presupposes what I'm going to say is the need for an an mature adult in their life who can steer the ship 
whether it's a mother and a father or just a mother or just a father, someone needs to be steering this vessel, okay? So what's the best thing? Number one, someone's present in this team's life who's a significant influence on them. Now, two, this significant influence must be must be in some manner positive. And it doesn't have to be, by the way, a care, direct caregiver. It could end up being a teacher. It could end up being a counselor. But someone, let's just say for now it's a parent. And what do I mean by positive? That I can talk to you. I can, you know, I respect you. Who you are as a person and how you, this is, I'm talking about the teen looking at his mother or father or caregiver. Um, I trust you. I'm safe with you. And I can talk to you is huge. You know, I have a friend whose teen got in some big trouble with alcohol and that teen called that mom three in the morning, mom, I need your help. Because that teen felt like that mom would be there through thick or thin. It was okay to call at three in the morning. Mm-hmm. I hope every teen feels that way about their parent, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there were consequences. I thought it was a great this, this This particular parent had hauled the entire group of teens that got in trouble and their parents into a powwow. How's that for a resolve? And the parents and the teens all got together and they kind of looked at what happened. Great mm-hmm. follow-up. Mm-hmm. Um, consequences followed as well. And long story short, that teen went on to college and is now thriving. But to answer your question, you need an adult in that picture, in that teen's life, not just in the periphery, not just, you know, a roof over that teen's head, but someone who's there who had years earlier prepped this team. You can talk to me. I'm here. All things equal. The teen may or may not rise up to accepting that parent, but that parent's there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think? That sounds good. <laughs> That sounds good to me. Are there, are, are there any specific strategies that parents should use when talking to their teens? Any things that work better than others? Well, I think with teens, it's, it's tricky because, um, again, what I find with teens, first of all, in general, is the, is the parent must allow for a certain amount of rebellion. In fact, it's a natural part of the evolution of the teen coming into an independent identity. So hopefully one strategy is the parent has a certain understanding of what it means to be a teen. I think one of the most important strategies is to be able to communicate, talk. Can we use words? Um, Whether that teen likes it or not. Now, I'm not talking about a parent um, pandering to the teen tiptoeing around the teen. I'm talking about a strong, direct, authentic, yet calm, sincere, and validating voice. Mm-hmm. So one strategy is be aware of your tone when you talk to your teen. Mm-hmm. What is your tone? Are you, is it, are you accusing? Are you, I mean, there's certainly a time to get upset. I don't mean to hold your emotions and check every second as a parent, but I think one of the most powerful strategies, and this would have been prepared before teenage years, is that there's a a parent there who's independent and unique enough not to be reacting to everything the child's doing and taking it personal. So I can talk to my child, I can address his or her issues in a manner that's both firm, directive, directed, 
and giving direction, as well as trying to understand. And maybe this is another strategy, which is can you understand or listen, whether you agree or not, hear your team's point of view? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you somehow empower or validate that point of view mm-hmm. while you're steering the ship? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the strategy of communication is probably one of the biggest. Um, I think a big part of this book touches upon an authentic dialogue. Um, I'm talking about, I pretty much spell out what many teams do, how they buy their pot, where they hide their pot, their secrets and their lies about pot. Well, what if as administrators and parents, we were to approach it from this is what you're doing. Let's talk about where you're at. Mm-hmm. as well as what I would like you, where I would like you to be at. Mm-hmm. I was talking at a book signing the other day, and one of the kids was uh, had come up to me and said, you know, we're pretty much told not to do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Mm-hmm. And we do it anyway. So I wonder who's talking about, well, if you are going to do it, let's talk about how you're doing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's kind of the taboo subject, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Now, who wants to talk about how you're doing? Yeah, go ahead. What if the parent also smokes pot? Uh, could is it all right for the parent to smoke with the teenager, or is it a bad idea? Or what do you think of that? You know, that's a chapter. Parents who smoke pot, and um, the way I address it is, it's not okay um, to smoke with your teen. Um, it, it happens every day in the United States and around the world, where an adult will an adult parent will smoke with their teenager. I do not advocate it. Um, I think boundaries have to be kept. Um, the parent needs to either own that they do, but not do it in front of the teen, um, and keep the boundaries separate. I did have a colleague of mine, not a colleague, a friend, not in the, the mental health field, who wanted to buy pot for his teen. He smoked. Because he felt that the team was safer if he got him his pot. Mm-hmm. I did not agree with this. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate to say it, but your team needs to more or less find the responsible way to proceed. What I will say about parents who smoke pot is at some point in adult life, generally after college or later once a teen is thriving in college, there may come a time when the parent and the team might smoke marijuana together. But that's down the road. That's truly mm-hmm. down the road, um, I would hope. Um, but but um, it's a question of boundaries. And a parent who smokes, I would ask that they keep that separate from their teenager's life. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my feeling. What do you think? Um, well, I don't have any children, so I didn't really, I haven't really <laughs> Uh, considered it, um, well, one of the, but one of the things because I deal with alcohol um, okay. that that we have discussed, and this is particularly the problem with uh, drinking and driving, uh, because alcohol causes so much impairment for the teens that drive. You know, some parents would like to host the parties at their house so that the the kids right. don't go yep. out and drive. Of course, there's a law against the parent doing that. The parent will be thrown in prison if they do that. So, um, if they're caught. <laughs> yeah, if they're caught and it's happened, I mean, parents have been thrown in prison for throwing the party, Yes. even though yes, that was, the, that was the only intent was to stop them from drinking and driving. 
because you know if they are on their own, they do very almost I mean, very very frequently drink and drive when they're partying, you know, on their own, Correct. and they don't have a space. So and you know, there's not. I mean, marijuana doesn't impair driving quite as much as alcohol, but uh, I mean that was one of the reasons, one of the things that came to my mind. What's that? Whether to drink or does it matter smoke pot and drive? Well, have, having a safe space to uh, engage in your oh oh a safe space. I see. Um, you know, that may be a parent's prerogative to. I'm going to give you know every parent has their way of cutting the cake here. Um, you bring up a couple points though. Um, you know, how do we create? Well, let me rewind. What is an? Yeah, what constitutes a smart pot smoker? ages 13 to 17. Mm-hmm. A couple things. Don't start when you're 13. <laughs> Be smart. Uh, studies have shown the earlier you start, the more problems you have later in life. Mm-hmm. Hold off. One. Two. A couple ground rules here. Do not... Well, let me rewind. First off, know yourself. And this is right there in and of itself, like an Kind of an anti it's an, it's an unintuitive question for a team. No, do you know yourself? Um, what are your limits? What are your weaknesses? Um, are you prone toward addiction? Do you have a family history? These are not natural questions for a team to ask. But if a team chooses to smoke pot, get to know yourself. How often are you doing it? These are the qualities of a smart pot smoker: is to know when, where, how, and why you're smoking. Okay. Are you smoking before school? Are you smoking at school? Are you doing it every day? Are you doing it sometimes? These are all questions that need to be answered or looked at, if nothing else, by both parent and team. Um, that said, does a parent create a safe haven or a safe place for a teen to smoke? It's possible. I'm not going to rule it out. I do think parents will have situations where they allow an older teen, 16, 15, well, 16, 17, to have some friends over and they kind of give them some space. How much space and to what degree? It's a very personal question. Again, a taboo subject. Do we allow our teens to drink and smoke pot? I don't know if I'd be comfortable with that. Um, it's a, it's a, It's a slippery slope. But I would keep an eye on things for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and every family is different. Every teen situation is different. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also kind of, uh, um, this question segues into the other, another question, which is, is alcohol safer than marijuana mm-hmm. at some level? You had indicated that there may be some uh, diminished risk in a um person who drinks to excess of alcohol and a person who may smoke to excess and drive. Mm-hmm. Both will have impaired judgment. Both will have impaired um, response times. Mm-hmm. But the alcohol, in my mind, is far dangerous. Mm-hmm. Far more dangerous, excuse me. The, the absolute debilitating effect of alcohol, which will literally kill you at the highest levels, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm we don't quite have that same toxicity of death in an abundance of pot. We have a very tired, impaired driver who should not be driving. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll say that. Um, but in the biggest, kind of the biggest brushstroke here, I would say alcohol is more dangerous 
in general in excess than marijuana. Mm-hmm. If we're going to do one or the other, yeah. What do you think? Oh, I can agree with you on that. Um, you know, when we start looking at the studies on the dangers of drugs and what drugs are the most dangerous, well, what drug kills more people than anyone else? It's cigarettes. And then number two is alcohol. And then all the rest are way below those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's very true. In, in terms of, um, like, drug overdose addictions, you look at things like, you know, what 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 are killing people? You know, cigarettes, alcohol, then you get into painkillers, you get into abuse of barbiturates, and pot is generally kind of down the ladder. Again, that's not to advocate the use of marijuana, but we have to look at the big picture. Um, but your work with alcoholics, you've seen the devastating effects on families and individuals of alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sure. Absolutely. Alcohol is a very dangerous drug. That's why a harm reduction approach, great caution is needed if you are going to drink alcohol. You should be careful. You should be planning ahead. I mean, your motor abilities are so impaired by alcohol that, you know, you you have to be very cautious because you can't drive after you drink. It's just a terrible idea. Um, Even walking around out in the streets is not very safe after you've been drinking. So, you know, you should plan ahead. If you're going to drink at a bar with your friends, you know, be ready to call a taxi to take you home. Don't get too loaded at the bar. If you really want to get loaded, you do it at home and try, you know, Try to be safe because alcohol is very impairing, especially of motor skills. Right. And one could say some of the same principles should be applied to smoking pot, certainly for um, uh, uh, anyone who doesn't know their limits or is just starting out and experimenting. Be cautious. Um, be among, and I talk about this in the book, You know, be in a safe place. Be with a friend you trust. Don't necessarily have to go anywhere. Don't be driving. Um, certainly not at school. Don't impair that. I mean, education is huge in my book, and doing well is important. Um, do people try marijuana and go on to be very successful in their lives? Yes. Mm-hmm. But they, they learn that balance point. Um, but some of the precautions you talk about are, are quite legitimate for um, for the, the uh, person who might be considering smoking marijuana. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One thing uh, we touched we touched on this a little uh, before, and I want to go into some more detail about uh, the brain and the effects of uh, drug use and marijuana, alcohol, other drugs on the development of the teenage brain. And is this is this dose dependent? Is, is there a difference between somebody that smokes a joint once a month and somebody that's a stoner all day long? Yes, absolutely. So that I do believe, and I'm not a research scientist, but what I'm seeing, what I'm reading is that dose is absolutely um, a a factor, certainly, um, in the types of changing that, uh, excuse me, types of changes that the brain is incurring in different parts of the brain. And I I don't have the specific parts uh, in front of me, but I will say that, uh, let me see, do I have an article here? Yeah, I do. So we're looking at a part of the brain um, that is known as the nucleus accumbens. I hope Mm -hmm. I'm saying that right. 
it is at the core of motivation, the core of pleasure and pain. And what they're noticing is that um, it has smoking pot in quantity, has an impact on developing brains, more so than previously thought, um, on this particular region of the brain. So researchers at Harvard and Northwestern have looked into this recently in the brain scans of 20 college students who smoke pot, they're defining as four times or more per week on average. Mm-hmm. And that they showed abnormalities in the shape, density, and volume of this particular region of the brain. Um, it's a walnut-shaped area of the brain associated with, again, motivation, pleasure, and pain, which makes sense. I mean, mm-hmm. I hate to say it, but if you are smoking a psychotropic drug, basically, or ingesting anything that changes your mood, you're going to change, most likely, the shape of your brain. What does alcohol do to the shape of our brain? Okay, this is, I'm, not, I'm not rationalizing smoking pot, but I'm just saying that if this, is, this research is relative. Mm-hmm. But we have to take it at face value. We're smoking pot, teens' brains are changing, teens' brains are developing. Mm-hmm. What this tells us is to be cautious. I named this book, One Toke, A Survival Guide for Teens, in part because my thought is, if you do choose to try pot, if that is something that no one can talk you out of, please don't have much. Mm-hmm. You don't need much. One mm-hmm. puff. And get to know yourself. What are your limits? Don't smoke four times a week. If we know this research, be cautious once in a while, once in a, you know, socially, if, if, if you choose. Be aware that there's a potential risk the more you smoke, the earlier you smoke. Get to know yourself. How would teens handle this information? You Coming back to that original question of um, can teens control some of their impulses? I believe that as they mature, the answer is yes, mm-hmm. some level. I know this much, that if someone tossed this book that I wrote on my bed, not being my mother or father, I would have looked through it. I would have mm-hmm. glanced at it. I might not have read it cover to cover, but I would have certainly read it in part. And it's illustrated, so there's some kind of cool illustrations in it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, and the short answer is yes. The more you smoke, the more often the, that is current research is indicating that um, there are more risks involved, which mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, more I think... Anything. I think the more you are educated, and this includes teenagers as well, about a high-risk behavior, the better decisions you can make about that. So the more information you have, the better. And I'm going to give an analogy here of uh, Mm -hmm. when when students, uh, teenagers are learning how to drive, we want them to have a driver's manual, and we want them to learn everything in that driver's manual. We don't say just, okay, go out there on the street and, you know, trial and error until you learn it. We don't uh, have a drug user's manual like that, except maybe this is one. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, why shouldn't we not uh, be as careful with our children learning how to use drugs as we are about how to use an automobile, which is another very dangerous device. I agree with you, but I don't know if I think we're the minority. (laughs) Um, To actual talk, this conversation we're having is taboo. Do we want a manual for our young stirs, our young adults, on their propensity to do, let's say, to drink or smoke pot? We'll just talk about that. Absolutely. I don't know if if it's, if we want to, 
create manuals for how to do it as a more as let's inquire around what so if we do do it how do we reduce our risk i know i'm saying the same thing in different words you know i'm not saying go out there and do it and here's how you do it i'm mm-hmm. saying if you choose to do it these are ways that reduce risk mm-hmm. so i guess there's a little difference there in the nuance and the intention um but i agree with you i really do ken that that you're right that there are ways of doing things. And is it so bad? Is it such a crime to say, let's talk about how you're doing this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should you really... Know, you're going to go... Mm-hmm. I really feel that we... Yeah, did, we the more we can ahead. educate, the more we can educate young people about uh, intoxicants and their effects, the more wisely they can choose. We don't really... I don't think we have a difficulty talking about coffee, caffeine, which is an intoxicant that uh, people start using even before the age of 16. They're drinking Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, I don't know, at age 10, at age 5. And we forgot that's mm-hmm. a drug. That's a, that's a, a psychostimulant drug that affects your brain, and it's uh, highly addictive. I could not quit coffee for a month right now. It would be hell. I don't know how, what your habits are, but I know I'm totally addicted to it. You know. Well, I would go through withdrawal if I tried to stop. That's for sure. And, and this is a kind of not a not a, a well, it is somewhat physical, but you go through withdrawal. What you're talking about also is a conversation that is down to earth and authentic, and we're also talking about what I'm going to call self knowledge. You know, let's talk about who you are as a person. Where are you at? How are you? This is hard for teens to articulate, but there's ways to approach it. How do you see yourself? Um, I, I, I know there are ways that we can address this as both educational um, forerunners and at the forefront of a, a new and changing dynamic in the United States as and, and as well as parents who are caring deeply for our kids, um, whether it's a, a social worker or a teacher at a school or a parent who, who comes across their kid, a teen smoking pot, we, we, we can approach it from a, oh, a punishing, judgmental point of view. Or we hmm. can approach it from an educational, let's talk about here's some information, here are some options, where are you at? Let me ask you what's going on. Who are you here? And the teens formulating that. They're not going to have an answer. They're mm-hmm. going to say, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And, and that's normal. And we work around that. We, as adults, we understand that's how teens communicate. And we, we come, come around. But I agree with you. It's an important question. And, yes, we can approach it from an intelligent point of view as adults, meeting our teens where they're at. Mm-hmm. Education, authenticity, compassion, validity, guidelines, how can you be smart, harm reduction absolutely implies ways of doing things that reduce risk. Mm-hmm. And that also, interesting, everything we're talking about, by the way, everything is rooted in the understanding we are imperfect and contradictory people, uh, humans. Mm-hmm. It is not just follow the rules. Can you imagine a world where we all did what we're told to do? <laughs> <laughs> so, but the truth is, we're contradictory. That is reality. 
and can we approach this fundamental reality of contradiction and imperfection with some compassion and understanding? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was just, you know, I was just thinking about the people that don't use intoxicants at all, um, like Mormons, for example, that don't even use caffeine. And that's not my right. ideal. That's not my ideal of how I would like to live. So, you know, I think intoxicants have a legitimate place uh, in our lives. But as I wanted to say earlier, uh, you know, there's a there's a huge range of difference in risks involved with different intoxicants. Caffeine is probably about the safest one we can think of. And, you know, there's others, alcohol and uh, opioids are have really high risks connected with them. Uh Mm-hmm. Cigarettes too. I mean, it's not nicotine is the problem, of course. Uh, it's the delivery system when you get all the the tars connected with it that are the carcinogens. Mm-hmm. Um, so right. you know, we we really have to uh, look at uh, you know which intoxicants do we want to choose to use, or which intoxicants does a teen want to choose to use, and the better informed they are about the risk connected with each of them, I think the more wisely they can choose. I agree with that wholeheartedly. So there we're back to this kind of, you know, this point of view that um, there's a place for a conversation about how, when, where, why you may be doing what you're doing. Um, One thing we haven't really touched upon is the potential for um, abuse uh, in family systems that leads to the abuse of drugs. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Um, the cause and effect of a dysfunctional mother or father that is not able to demonstrate what I'm going to call um, compassion and for whatever reason, for whatever reason, um, from their own world of having been brought up in dysfunction, but they carry it through from generation to generation, which perpetuates this world of um, somewhat unconscious addictions that lead toward the truly most dangerous of drugs and behavior. Um, mm-hmm. It's a little different subject. Um, I don't, I'm not necessarily addressing the deeper socio um, implications here of dysfunctional and uh, uh, potentially um, life-threatening family systems, but I'm addressing the family system that can buy a book, talk about an issue, have the means to listen to your podcast or, or do some research on their own, think, you know, think forward and um, choose to have a communication with their child. Um, and it, it, may, it may be cleaning up a little bit of the mess that was made <laughs> from their own upbringing. And there's, again, I come back, nothing wrong with saying I'm sorry if you made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. as a parent. Um, but there are drugs. We definitely need to pick and choose. Uh, there, there are drugs that will, will like alcohol, will, will kill you in, in, in abundance. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and another question I just kind of, I'll, I'll, I'll just briefly touch upon is, is, is a notion that I have, I say in the introduction of this book, I, I call it Don't Read This, Helping Teens Will Read It, um, is I talk about how Americans in general, we lean toward an abundance 
and a, a kind of over, uh, I don't know, we do it, we just do it overkill, whether mm-hmm. it's drinking or drugs or something else. It's um, In Europe, where there's plenty of problems, there, there is a certain maturity toward drinking and drugs um, where it's not as excessive. I believe mm-hmm. this. I've seen this in my own, I lived there for six years, and at least in the early stages, I may change as adults where it becomes just as excessive as us, but teens are drinking legally at the age of 16 in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a maturity in France where it's not, not a big deal to have a glass of wine. There's a sense that we don't have to get um, effed up to mm-hmm. uh, enjoy ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes, I don't know if American teens are growing up with that. I'd like to think it's better than it used to be in the 70s, 60s. There's a little more restraint going on, I believe that. But uh, there is this element of... Um, you know, can we can we know ourselves enough not to drink too much, not to smoke too much, mm. let alone go on to harder drugs? Yeah, there's actually a huge amount of research on this very topic, uh, and Stanton Peel reviews lots of it in various books that he's written. But uh, we see the the Mediterranean culture, particularly in Italy. I mean, people typically have a couple glasses of wine every day. Uh, nobody gets drunk. Uh, it's very socially unacceptable to be intoxicated. And then we can move mm-hmm. up uh, more into Northern Europe and, well, look at Great Britain and Ireland. Um, getting shit-faced is really much of the norm there. And it's abstain or get shit-faced. And it's not this relaxed so culture. Uh, the, the culture you're brought up in has huge effects and uh, I mentioned Cahalan and Room study earlier, um, and uh, this was in the United States. And uh, as I said, it was a long time ago. People were much more concentrated in neighborhoods. Uh, but they could look at Mediterranean neighborhoods, Italian neighborhoods, and see these same European drinking patterns going on there. And in uh, the Irish or British neighborhoods, they also saw the same patterns of, you know, that they saw in the U.K., so uh, definitely culture has a huge impact, and it's very well established by the research studies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would agree, absolutely. Culture is huge. And I lived abroad for about six years, and I, I agree with, with much of what you're saying just from empirical evidence. It was, a, huh, I mean, interestingly, I was in Ireland as well, and saw more, I mean, I saw a baby's bottle with a little bit of whiskey going in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was the first, but I, I like to think that's changing as well. But the culture is huge. Culture is huge, and you know, and our culture, the American culture, is unique in its own way. Um, mm-hmm. I think we're known for big and brash and assertive and often excessive, um, which could be true of any culture. I don't mean to say that uh, it doesn't exist everywhere in the world, um, but America is unique. And our problems are unique. And to the degree to which our problems exist, they're unique. And um, it'd be nice to see some teens reading this book. (laughs) And parents. Interestingly, I'm finding parents are purchasing this book for their teens. 
I don't know what teens buy these days. But parents, some grandparents who have inherited a teen for whatever reason, um, that's I'm seeing this book purchased and then handed to the teen or given out to the teen. I notice some schools are purchasing it, controversially, controversy or not. Uh, the book is making its way into uh, into the homes of our our teens. Uh, speaking of which, is this available as an electronic book or just in paper? No, it's both. That's a good question. Okay. So it's available on iTunes as well as um, Amazon in the digital format. Um, I believe it's around $7 for that format. And um, it's available as a paperback as well on Amazon as well as iTunes. And um, Most bookstores will have it for you as well. Barnes & Noble carries it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the book's out there. And um, it just came out October 10th, so we're just trying to get the, the wheels Greece, do you know how it goes with writing a book? You want to get the word out as best you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's <laughs> I, my I very much appreciate. Yeah, go it, ahead. It's my impression that uh, young people are much more likely to be getting ebooks these days than paper books. And us older folks like me, uh, <laughs> we still like the paper books most of the time. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I mean, the age of you know this book. Again, kind of 15, 14, 15, right up to 17, 18, 19. Um, certainly, as you get older, you're reading a little more. Um, but I agree with you. The ebook has taken a huge, just exponentially huge uh, growth in the, the last years, and I believe it's continuing to grow. People do prefer, well, young people in particular have their Kindles. Uh, how about yourself? Are you reading on a Kindle these days? Oh, I have a Kindle, and I have the uh, Kindle reading app for PC, which I'm much more likely to use. My batteries always run out on my Kindle. But I do use okay. the the Kindle app for PC sometimes, but I prefer oh. the actual paperback book to put in my backpack and carry uh, along with me and read on the train and things. Uh, right, right. Some, yeah. books aren't, some books are not available uh, in paperback, and you can only get them on mm-hmm. Books, so that's one reason I had the app. Uh, certain books are much cheaper. Uh, you know, if I have to pay $150 for a textbook in you know paper or uh, $60 for the ebook, uh, I'm going to get the ebook. <laughs> How about it? I, be- I I agree. I agree. I haven't quite jumped ship, but I I um, I do some reading online, quite a bit online. I haven't got the Kindle yet, but. Uh... I like to hold the book in my hand when possible as well. Well, I think for me, one of the other things is I read so many PDFs because I read articles. And, you know, getting articles in paper, you just don't get articles, journal articles in paper anymore. You just get them in PDF. So I spend so much time reading online. I just want to get away from that screen sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. There's one more thing I I wanted to ask you about before we, you know, finish up here. We'll have to finish up soon. Um, and that, have you contacted or tried to contact drugfree.org, which you might think would be the last place to go, but they have changed so much in their orientation recently. Um, I know that they were uh, they were getting trained in Narcan in a naloxone overdose reversal and that they were teaching that and uh, they they really changed in their attitude now. So have you ever contacted them? 
I haven't. I'm just gearing up on a number of levels marketing this book. We've been about just a little over a month since publication date. But that's a great suggestion. I'll look into drugfree.org. I'm open to any and all uh, yeah. possible venues. Um, Thank I, you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I interviewed Jerry Otero a few weeks ago. Uh, he He used to work for them, and then he got a new job with the Drug Policy Alliance, which... Uh, interestingly, the Drug Policy Alliance, I believe, came to speak at DrugFree.org. So those two are actually cooperating, which is just, you know, that's not what you would have thought about in the fried egg days. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, uh, I didn't, yeah, I wouldn't have expected that. Absolutely not. That's pretty amazing. I will reach out to them. I think that's a great idea. And um, I, I think uh, I'm glad to hear that they're also kind of changing their 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 strategies. I think mm-hmm. it's important to stay fluid in how we approach our problems. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's another possibility. Another possibility yeah. you might want to look at is uh, Moms United Against the War on Drugs. I think it's to end the war on drugs. It's Moms United, mm-hmm. um, which you can find them on Facebook. Um, they have a website, too. I think it's through A New Path. But uh, that's another very interesting group that uh, you might find very receptive to your ideas in your book. Well, make a note of that as well. Thank you. Have you interviewed them as well? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. And I've met them in person at the Harm Reduction Conference, which, um, oh, well, it's going to be, it's two years before the next one in San Diego in 2016. But, uh, you know, definitely uh, consider the Harm Reduction Conference, too. We'll make a note of that. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate your time and your your questions are great. And uh, we've covered some some we've covered some excellent topics here. Mm-hmm. We're actually going to have to close up now because I have to host a chat in about four minutes. But tell us, okay, where we can find you online? Where's your, where we can find your book? Give us okay, a book so. Yeah, One Toke, A Survival Guide for Teens, www.onetoke.org. And uh, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, available in e-format as well as paperback. So you can easily go to the website. There's an option to voice your opinion on the website. I'd love to hear from various teens on the topic. Uh, some of the questions presented, but uh, onetoke.org is our website at this juncture. Okay, thank you very much for being our guest this evening. Thank you, Ken. My pleasure. and Best of luck to you. Okay, everyone, come back next week. We're going to actually be talking about addictive video games, addictive Facebook games, the games on your iPhone, how they hook you. Uh, the strat- We're going to talk about the strategies that they use to build these things. So it should be a very interesting show. We will see you all next week.